Hello there, my name is Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. As a freelance angling journalist of around 40 years experience, for obvious reasons, I reckon I've got a pretty good historic handle on the magazine publishing industry and have, at some stage or other, worked for all of them, including Sea Angler, which besides being the senior citizen here in terms of longevity, has also been the market leader throughout my entire angling career. If my recollection serves me well here, I remember buying the very first edition as a thin black and white magazine edited by Ted Lamb back in March 1972. As the first ever specialist sea angling magazine on the market, it proved to be an absolute revelation. Now, 40 years on, and for the first time ever I would add, I'm sat inside the ultra-busy open-plan offices of periodical media giants Bauer Publishing at Peterborough, where the Sea Angler team, including long-serving editor Mel Russ, all have their desks. Not exactly the ideal recording scenario, sat in the middle of a busy open-plan office. On the other hand, the perfect setting to step beyond generally held misconceptions and get some accurate appreciation of just exactly what a busy magazine editor's lot is actually like, and more to the point, for Mel, has been like over the past 27 years. But to give it a more all-embracing perspective, I'd like first to kick things off with a quick potted chronological history of the magazine, from Ted Lamb and Peter Collins in the black and white era, through the evolution of colour and your hand taking the tiller, to where we find ourselves today. Ted Lamb was the original launch editor. First issue was in March 1972. When we look back now, it, it looks very, very dated. But to the sea anglers of the time, it was quite a revelation because it was the first magazine for them, first magazine for sea anglers, uh, and it went down pretty well. It was a sort of skinny beast, 50-odd pages per month, all black and white. I suspect in those days it was all what we call phototype set, when you had galley proofs, which had to be read before the pages were laid down. It was quite time-consuming, and it was illustrated with only black and white photographs. Again, when we look back now at some of the angles and the, some of the things that were depicted in those early magazines was quite worrying from a modern publishing point of view. Things like fish covered in blood, which you will never ever see today. Gaffs in fish, which you will never ever see today. Fishmonger slabs with dozens and dozens of fish lying all over the place. Men in welly boots with sea boot stockings and woolly hat bubble hats. Smoking cigarettes, which is something else you will not see today. So we've sort of cleaned the magazine up. Ted took it so far and it got sort of stuck and it needed a new editor. And at that time they had a features editor on Angling Times called Peter Collins, who came from Norfolk, was an ex-Navy man, he was a shipwright, very, very keen on sea angling. And he was asked to take over Sea Angler. He did a brilliant job. He was very controversial. Disliked the National Federation of Sea Anglers <laughs> because he called them empty blazers. He said they loved committees, but they never got anything done. And he thought they weren't serving Sea Anglers particularly well. He tended to um, favour the local federations rather than the national body. He thought they were far more effective than the national body. Pete did extremely well with the magazine. It grew and grew in strength. The pages got more and more pages. Spot colour came into the equation, which is uh, 
sort of a very weak wash colour on the pages. And it helped to make the magazine look more professional. The technology from the printing point of view changed. It became set by computer operators, but still in the printing works. In fact, Sea Angler was a spin-off from downtime at a local printing company that actually printed newspapers. For printing presses to be effective and make a lot of money, they have to run for 23 hours a day. So they can't have downtime. So during the downtime, what would have been downtime periods, they slotted in um, magazines. In fact, two of our company's biggest papers at the time were Motorcycle News and Angling Times, two highly successful newspapers actually printed on daily newspaper downtime. Pete had his own way of doing things. He'd get stuck in and do the job and then he'd go off fishing. Uh, he was a bit of a rebel and in fact the day I joined the magazine to take over from him as he retired he started laughing and he said they don't know it yet he said but they're getting rid of one rebel but actually I've got another one meaning me and um, I've been fairly independent all the time that I've been in the magazine I tend to do my own thing and the technology has changed a pace you can't keep up with it today we went from photo typesetting to desktop publishing. It's a sore point in my house because my wife is an ex-typesetter. And I actually put her out of work when we brought the job in-house and did it on Macs. Digital photography, electronic layout, photoshopping, the way we cut copy, the way copy is transported around the world as it comes in raw to me. In the old days it was hard copy and we'd have to retype it and sub-edit it. These days it comes in electronically and we more or less get stuck into it straight away on screen. Roger Bazand in Australia, an old Limington skipper, can send me a story one day and I can be working on it the next. Which, when you think about how we used to do it in the old days, is absolutely amazing. Photography is stunning. The digital photography, we can enhance it, we can delete it. Photo shoots on the beach. In the old days we'd shoot a roll of tranny and we'd debit, and we never knew what we were going to get. We always crossed our fingers when it came back from the debbing people. These days, we do six shots on the beach, and we look in the back of the camera, and we say to the photographer, yes, great, just what we need, or that's rubbish, do it again. So we throw all that away, and we do it again. Take seconds. In the old days, it was like, (laughs) you know, you've been there. It's a very exciting thing to do to start with 140 blank pages. Because unlike advertising, a lot of their stuff is standing from the manufacturers. Editorial guys start with, in my case, say, 100 blank pages. And over a four-week period, I have to fill that with things that excite people, inform people, show people, make them better anglers. We put together a package, which is... The package has actually evolved over the 27 years I've been editor and basically we move with the market as the market moves we move a magazine that stands still goes nowhere dies so things like we launched Boat Angler which was a separate magazine but when we changed companies they wanted it brought in house to Sea Angler so we've got a big Boat Angler section I identified that actually it wasn't me 
was talking to a chap called Henry Gilby down in Plymouth, who's a great bass fisherman, one of the best photographers I know. He said, Mel, keep an eye on bass fishing. He tipped me the wink, so I watched it for a little while, and I thought, actually, he's right. There's something happening here I ought to get onto. So we, working with a lot of photographers and writers, we put a, a Bassett package together. That is proving very, very successful. We've now got, got our eye on kayak fishing. Now, I was very, very wary of kayak fishing because I ran my own boat for 10 years, and I'd had a lot of training, OIA training, my wife had two, and I could see a disaster waiting to happen because these kayak guys were, I think, were pushing their luck in the early days. They're highly tapped these days. They've got radios, GPSs, and they fish doubled up with a buddy or as groups. But I was very wary about getting involved in it because I didn't want it on my shoulders that I'd encourage somebody to go to sea and died because I don't think I could have ever faced that person's wife. I thought it was a big responsibility at the time. But I got involved in it. We did a lot of training. We did uh, show people how to do it properly. And I think most of them are pretty sensible. Uh, Although I still see them far, far too far offshore and or out in too rough conditions. But I'm afraid all all the sea anglers push their luck at times. And now we're watching um, LRF, like rock fishing. That's emerging that's a spin-off from the bass anglers and also i think we've we've got a little bit of readership from the game fishing guys because as you may not know or trout fishing's the bubble has burst a little bit everybody's got fed up with fishing puddles in farms and uh, it's not real it's artificial so this group of guys have got the right mindset to go either bass fishing or lrfing like rock fishing so there's something else I'm having to keep my eye on and of course now we're, we're heading for the digital era sea angler has always been a paper product but we're now seriously looking at uh, digital platforms just going back to Peter Collins for a moment he was in my experience not the easiest of editors to get on with if your face didn't fit that was it and nothing you could do would probably ever make it fit either, as I know to my cost. That said, he must have been doing something right, because he did so much to take the image forward to the point where you took the helm on his retirement. Peter was an extremely strong character. He had massive run-ins with the EMAP management, that was East Midland Allied Press at the time. He had massive run-ins with marketing. He just couldn't see their worth. I wouldn't say he was self-opinionated, but you're right. If he didn't like you on the first meeting, maybe you were dead in the water. End of. Luckily, I got on with him okay. I met him when I worked at Angler's Mail. And we never crossed swords. But he was... He wanted everything done properly. He had rucks with the Environment Agency. He had rucks with the National Federation of Sea Anglers. He had rucks with some of his writers... And he just got rid of them. He couldn't be bothered. He just, this is what I'm going to do. If you don't like it, away you go. I never socialised with him, so I don't really know much about the man. But I know he was a very effective journalist in the old school. He was happiest crushing an old traditional typewriter. And it would all just flow. 
you know. And a lot of people don't know this. He actually, at the time, he was the editor of Sea Angler. He was also ghosting the Ivan Marks column for Angling Times. Now, Ivan Marks was a member of the famous Lester Lightly lads, a very, very shrewd match fisherman. And Pete drew out of him every week for a number of years and really sparkling copy. He was that sort of guy. He commanded respect. Now, you either liked him or you didn't. I did. Others didn't. They thought he was arrogant and self-opinionated. I didn't actually dislike him, but I think I can confidently say that he wasn't too impressed with me. You didn't fit the mould? Hmm. It would seem that way. Anyway, moving on. Would it be fair to say, then, that with Peter Collins' retirement looming, you was poached, or to be more precise, headhunted from Angler's Mail in the rival IPC stable? If so, what was it in terms of directional or editorial promises that persuaded you that this was the right move? No, I wasn't poached. I was the features editor on Angler's Mail. Our managing editor and I were the only two members on the staff who had any interest in sea angler. I'd done it since I was a little lad. My dad was in the Royal Navy. He was a sea angler and he encouraged me. One day the editor's secretary came up to me with a trade magazine and in it was an advert for an editor for Sea Angler magazine. And she showed it to me. She said, Mel, this might interest you. And she just walked off. I applied and I was welcomed with open arms. The simple reason is, working as a news editor and reporter and features editor on Angler's Mail, I knew all the guys of that era on Angling Times, including their editor. He'd seen my work, he'd seen how I, what I could do, he's, he liked my methods. I applied for the job and I was hauled up to Peterborough and I was given the job straight away. I had the interview in the afternoon and Barry Dennis, who was the publisher at the time, phoned me at home in the evening and said, the job's yours, Mill. I think it was a, part, a little bit of politics as well because they were taking me off of Angler's Mail, which would give them a few problems until they got a proper replacement but it strengthened Sea Angler. Though he and I didn't actually get on, it would be fair to say that Peter Collins was probably a hard act to follow. He knew what he wanted, and as importantly as I found out to my cost, also what he didn't want. So what was the direction you saw as being right in which to take the magazine forward, and how did he handle the situation you inherited, then start to steer it along the particular course you had in mind? Um, I'd identified a few areas that really needed sorting out. One was photography, one was the, the weight of the copy and how it was delivered on page, in other words, the design. It's very easy for editors that have sat in the chair for a long time to get set in their ways, get complacent. I'm not saying Peter was complacent, but he did what he did, and that's fine by me. But I was, um, in fact, I was called by another editor when I first came to this building, oh yeah, Mel, he's, a spit, he's our new Spitfire editor. And I came in and I tiffed a lot of it out. People like John Holden and John Rawl and Steve Mills, who I rated highly and had worked with as contributors on Angler's Mail, I kept and we developed. We we did different things. We did it a different way. We got photographers involved more. We planned the issues more. I had a brand new designer because the first one was, in my view, just wasn't cutting the mustard. So we got a new designer redesigned it pushed and pushed for more colour because in those days we, it was a mix of uh, a little bit of four colour 
little bit of spot colour and all the rest was black and white. And I said to my publisher, this looks dour and miserable. We need to sort this out. Luckily, I came in when the technology was changing and it allowed us eventually within 18 months, two years to go full colour, which allowed me to offer the reader a completely different product, much more modern, much more design-led. Some areas controversial. I, I was no lover of the National Federation of Sea Anglers, really. I was more interested in, if you wanted to be a political animal, you really got to deliver to the public what they want. Just turning up at a meeting and not achieve anything, to, in my view, was a complete waste of time. Um, I sat on one or two other committees from the press point of view, and to be honest, I was completely bored with it. Well, I couldn't even get a decent story about out of what they'd been talking about. It was just negative from my point of view. As we're looking to record a little piece of history here, can we also mention a few of the contributors you've worked with over the years? Some, obviously, will be self-contained in terms of journalistic and photographic abilities, while others, not necessarily always out of that particular mould, would still be important contributors because of their experience, achievements, or perhaps even simply because of their name. Sea Angler had a wonderful mix of characters. Some were ordering on very good journalists, and people like Clive Gammon was a superb journalist. Looking back now, I realised that technically... He was not that great. But for setting the picture, setting the mood, putting you or me on a storm beach in Western Ireland, sitting in a pub having a beer, things going seriously wrong or something funny, he was the master at capturing that. To watch him fish is a completely different story. A wonderful guy. I think he's, he's missed in some circles still today. Other writers like John Holden, a wonderful caster, technically so smooth, it's unbelievable. And because he has a, a very good education, his delivery of copy is sweet and crisp. It's the editor's delight. It's a half-hour job to work on his copy. Another man like that is Dr Mike Ladle, who's an ex freshwater, was retired freshwater biologist. He's a bit more colourful than John, got a lot more experience. A bit like Pete Collins, he tells it how it is, because that's where he comes from, in the northeast of England, and that's their code, that's how they talk. But he's got a, a wonderful way of writing. On the other side, you've got people like Terry Carroll. I mean, you could sit in a pub all night and he could talk to you about carbons, and profiles and fast tips and reverse tapers. I don't think there's a man around today who could match him as far as the technicalities of building a mandrel, wrapping a blank, baking it and finishing it. Because not only is he one of the great beach anglers of his time, he used to be with Moncrief and John Darling and the likes of that down on the south coast and particularly around Dungeness. You know, he understood the fishing, he understood what, we, what anglers wanted, and he could make those bespoke rods. Now, they weren't cheap, but they'd never let you down, and they delivered. They did what they said on the label. If it said Ziplex, you know you got a damn good rod. Any others? I loved Bob Gledhill's style. In some ways, he was a little bit of a Pete Collins. He was a little bit of a rebel, and... He was my writer who stirred up the readers. And 
he'd say, right, Mel, we're going to do this. And I'd say, Bob, that's fantastic. You've just filled my post bag for the next issue. Having said that, he dug out some great stories. He dug out all sorts of tackle angles. I think he was a typesetter himself professionally, or he was in the printing trade. His copy was very clean. Again, I didn't have a lot of work on it. And because he was a, a match angler turned journo and pretty handy black and white photographer, he was a bit of a jack of all trades and really it was a, a dream to work with him. He had another side to him. He was very interested in cooking. He did a lot, lot of chef-type stuff and books. and That's what he was doing in the last few years of his life. But I actually hadn't seen him out in the boat for quite a while when I heard he was sadly gone. Yeah, but he actually drifted away from sea angler or sea angling and got involved in cookery. Great bloke. I love John Rawl as well. Fish with John loads of times. Because for a while I lived in Chelmsford in Essex, which is not a stone's throw from Bradwell. I used to go out with him. And oddly enough, Bob Nadu became the world champion. We always used to go out cod fishing in the Thames Estuary. And John was so funny. The stories he'd tell. He'd have you in fits. And you'd all be fishing away and he'd come out and start yarning. But he's another man who knew. He'd grown up, as a naval expression, he's come up through the horse hole. In other words, he was like a, a sailor and he became an officer. And he did it the hard way. He was a bait digger professional bait digger he landed on up skippering several charter boats developed up tiding him and um, Bob Cox held a tote record a stingray record caught some huge bass I mean the Thames estuary was his happy hunting ground but the Thames estuary is very dangerous lots of sandbanks gullies and bad weather and mist so you have to be a pretty sharp skipper to work those waters and he did, he knew exactly what he was doing. I actually interviewed John regarding the development of uptiding a couple of years ago. I'd previously fished with him back in the 1970s. That, for me, was a particularly impressive interview. I also have another of your team coming up soon in Alan Yates, so any pointers there will be gratefully received. When you speak to Alan Yates, you've got to ask him why he kicks his tackle box. Because he gets frustrated when things don't go right or the fish aren't feeding or he's screwed up it's quite known for him to just take a swing at his tackle box in frustration but the guy is absolute he's a world class angler got a gold team medal what he doesn't know is just unbelievable he's one of my key writers he, is, he knows everything about everything can be a little bit self opinionated he doesn't like fixed ball reels for some reason. He's calls them. He said, "Why do you want to f- fish with a fixed ball reel when you can fish with a perfectly good multiplier?" But I says, "I say, Alan, not everybody can master the multiplier. The fixed ball reel is damned effective if you know how to use it." So he gets stuck in his in his ways, but he's he's a joy to be with. Lovely writer. Too much information. You have to sorted out Uh, he gets carried away he gets very excited Uh, and a man for a man of his age and I think he's a little bit older than me his appetite still was great today as it was when he was young man fishing for England one other person I would particularly like to mention here is Dave Lewis because many years ago on a rival publication I recruited him for his first ever article 
and the rest, as they say, is now history. So I feel a particular bond with Dave, though I would add that everything he's deservedly achieved at Sea Angler and beyond has come entirely from his own enthusiasm, drive and ability. Dave Lewis is a personal friend. He's my consultant editor, as far as Boat Angler is concerned. When I met him, he was working for a rival magazine, and I said to my publisher at the time, I want Dave on my team. So my publisher personally went and saw Dave and did a deal. And Dave is so loyal, so hard-working, so professional. He is the true photo journalist, angling journalist. He is really sharp. His background, he's a navigation officer in the, in the Merchant Navy. And he uses some of his sea time when he was a younger man to do his job today. Because when he was a fireman, he used to train firemen to skipper ribs that went out on rescue missions and actually picked up bodies out of rivers and out of the sea. But he's got an offshore skipper's ticket. He's extremely well qualified. He's a nice writer. He's a very, very good photographer. He's supplied me with quite a few front pages over the years. And the thing about Dave is, he never says no. I say to him, Dave, I've got this idea, will you do it? And I bet within a day or two, I've got an email from him saying, fixed for next Wednesday. Now, as an editor, I cannot ask for anything better than that. He's total loyalty, totally professional. He's also very commercially minded. He's got one or two consultancies. He works with Shimano, uh, Angler's World Holidays. And I think he's done extremely well. He's built himself a, a package. He's now retired from the fire service. He's done his 25 years. Had to retire because they do in, in the fire service. He's now a full-time photojournalist. Works like a beaver for me. You know, he really does. He's done some fantastic stuff under some appalling conditions. Now, you'll know about that weather particularly. But, you know, testing boats at sea sometimes is very, very difficult. But he always gets the image always gets the copy and never says no. I can't ask for anything more. Moving on now to the magazine production, talk us through a typical editorial month. The editorial month is a, really a rolling programme because as I'm f- finishing one magazine, I'm planning the next one. Now on my computer and on, on my paper files, I have all my ongoing features from my mainstream writers and photographers. Some is uh, speculative, some of it is ordered, some of it is um, as it happens. Like in the last issue we had a guy who caught an £11 bass down on the Admiralty Breakwater and I got Alan and our chief photographer down there and we got, on the spur of the moment, a front page and seven pages inside. Now that is sort of um, a flip back, if you like, from the days when I was a news editor. I thought, I've got to do that, I've got to grab that now and run with it, because it's exclusive. So that all goes into the mix. But while I'm working on the magazine, I'm also looking three months ahead. The files just grow and grow. Some of it's done on a cycle, obviously like cod mid-autumn through to mid-February. Then you've got the spring run, and then you've got the summer bass, and then you've got your summer boat fishing. You can get caught in a trap. It's like any hobby magazine, whether you were doing um, any sort of fishing or maybe a garden magazine, you get caught in the seasons. So you have to cover the seasons. You also have to 
cover all the types of readers you've got. You've got the, the guys just coming into the sport. You've got the guys who are coming back into the sport who are technically way, way behind. And one of their comments is when they read the magazine, wow, how things have changed. It's catch-up time. And then you've got the tech heads, the bass anglers, the boat anglers, and they've got all the different age profiles, their status, and also how much they can afford to pay. Some people might scoff at a 25 quid fixed ball reel, but to some people, 25 pounds is quite a lot of money, particularly if you're on a basic wage. So you, you have to put all these equations into the pot. Um, you flat plan it, which takes about half a day. You have to get the run of adverts mixed up with the run of editorial. You have to make sure it doesn't clash. And then you get preferential sites for special clients. They have to be taken into consideration. We run two flat plans. Mine is handwritten. Cliff Brown, my chief sub, he's got an electronic one. Mine is movable because as the month goes on and things change and the way I taste copy, if I don't like it, I might dump it and replace it or I might make it from three pages to two so it's all movable. Or I might have misjudged a feature and I look at it and I think that's worth four. So it all changes around. And then we start with the graft, which is the sub-editing, the writing, photographic. We've got our own photographic studio with our own studio photographer. We've got two photographers out on the road who I have to share with the rest of the angling. But they are angling photographers and they've got all the appropriate kit. And then basically you work with the designer, do the headlines. Cliff does all the um, second sub-editing, the second reads. I do all the first reads and um, slowly that you see the pages filling up but you've got to be careful because you don't want to do them all on press day so you've got to get an even flow of pages and copy going through we work to the five pages a day rule 25 pages a week times four is about 100 the only page where the management get involved in and that is my managing director is the front cover he just likes to have a look, see what we're up to, present that about a week before press day. Then he'll make comments or he'll say, nice one, Mel, or I don't like that. What about that? What does that mean? He's not an angler. It's my job as the editor to advise him why I've written that, that teaser or cover line. And he OK, right, I get that now. And then we, on press day, it's all electronic. In the old days, we used to send film to the printer. These days, we hit a button and it goes electronically direct to the printing company. The next thing we see is the magazine turns up. So contrary to popular misconception, an editor's life isn't spent sat in a swivel chair at a desk waiting for contributions to land in the post, then reading them through between a never-ending string of invites to fish and playing with fishing tackle handouts. Right, let's dispel that myth. Um, over the years, the editorial teams have got smaller obviously generate more profit and make the magazine more profitable. We've been helped to a certain extent by the technology. But because we're smaller teams, it's more work. And Sea Angler actually produces 13 issues over a 12-month period. So we're producing one every four weeks, or just a tad under four weeks. Which means to fill 100 pages from nothing, you've got to work fairly swiftly. And you've got to be pretty organised. 
in the old days when we had larger teams, I could be out fishing and doing features, but now I'm more of a, a manager. I commission stuff, I come up with the ideas, design and feature ideas, picture ideas. I'm in the studio sorting out photo shoots. I do go out on the beach, I work with people like John Holden and Dave. We do special jobs we do together. We go away and do three or four days' work, say in Wales or Ireland. But generally, it's, there's too many people calling on my time because not only have I got the readers, I've got the contributors, I've got the designer, the chief sub, the whole of the marketing department, the whole of sales. They're all looking to me for ideas, leads, help, advice. So my time is fairly split in all sorts of directions. Would it be correct then to describe it as a pressure job that progressively builds up a head of steam over the editorial month? And actually, I hadn't realised that it was up to 13 issues per year. I just assumed things worked on a calendar month rather than a lunar month. No, they give me an extra magazine and then cut my staff by two. And then you say, is it a stressful job? Well, no, it's not a stressful job if you're organised. And you're supported with great people like Yatesy, Holden, Mike Ladle and Dave Lewis. If you didn't have guys who were totally loyal to your title, including Henry Gilby and Mike Dobson and Ross Simons, they're all feeding me all the time, either ideas, copy, pictures, and I either reject it or I give them ideas and they work to a brief, usually a verbal brief, because I haven't got time to do a written one. It's all about teamwork, it's all about loyalty, and it's all about being focused on the production cycle. And presumably, the job description will also have changed out of all recognition during your tenure. So compare and contrast for us what was to what is now. In the old days, it was totally focused on the contributors and working on copy. Today, it's changed greatly. I have meetings to go to, budgets to look after, people to look after, their personal development to look after readers look after, subs queries to sort out when things go wrong. Editor, like, I'm the top of the page, I take the flack. I accept that. That's my job. I'm responsible, really, for everything. Because if everything goes legal or seriously wrong, I get it in the ear. Nobody else. But there have been trips, often with the best people and at the best times, as a source of providing editorial for the magazine and some exceptionally good fishing and spectacular individual bonus fish for you personally, one of which was a conger of over £100. Yes, that was back in... Um, where are we? I'm not sure when that was, to be honest. I was fishing on uh, Electric Blue out of Plymouth, and I was with Russ Simons, and the skipper then was Tony Allen, who was... you probably remember him, he was a really smart skipper. He had a purpose-built boat, and we went all the way to France virtually... Uh, my wife-to-be was with us and we had some local Plymouth anglers with us and we had two skippers because Tony owned a pharmaceutical business and he had a skipper on his boat all the week and he used to skip it at weekends so we had, luckily that day we had two skippers on board the owner skipper and the day skipper and we just hit this wreck and the conga just kept coming my wife had a 72 which was good in those days Guy standing next to me had an 82, which was phenomenal. And I had this huge brute that came up through the water and looked like a mini one-man submarine. 
And I said to Tony, after quite a tough fight, Christ's sake, don't lose it. Anyway, the two skippers stood at the stern. I worked my way back to give them some elbow room and they stuck two gaffs in it and brought it in on board and it went berserk. It was huge, absolutely huge. And I remember at the end of the day carrying it up to the scales because there was a big competition on at the day. We used their scales and um, it was too heavy for the scales that to change the bar. And it went 80, 90, we still wouldn't register it. Put it on 100 and it went 101. And everybody started cheering and slapping me on the back and clapping. It was one of the highlights of my um, personal achievements. It was probably one of the most greatest things I've ever done. But there was a really nasty sting in the tail to this story. But several years later, I was guest of honour at a Torbay Angling Festival, handing out the prizes. And I was in the gents' loo, and a guy came in and he said to me, oh, well done, Mel, for that conga. He said, it was a superb fish. And as he went out the door, he said, shame you killed it. And I felt terrible, because like, up to that moment, I never ever thought about it. And from that day on, my view of killing fish has completely changed. I go to sea, I'll have a great day's fishing, and quite often I'll come back and the fish boxes are empty. The only fish that I will bring back are cod, maybe eight or ten pound, or a bass, maybe five pound. For my wife, she loves fish. Strange enough, as the editor of Sea Angler, I do not like eating fish, but she loves fish. So I'll bring her in a couple and I'll gut them and fillet them for her. But I prefer to put everything back. I'm much more of a sporting angler now. I fish a lot lighter. I fish with braid. I want the fight. I want the, to feel the fish. And at the end of the day, I want my photograph taken with it if it's a notable specimen. And I want to watch it swim away. I don't want to see it dead in a box, all gone stiff and lost its colour. It really upsets me. It's 2012 now and 40 years since Sea Angler first hit the magazine racks. In the current climate of the internet, with so much free information available, and the potential for pay-to-view downloads, are you presiding now over the imminent demise of Sea Angler in its hard copy format, or do printed magazines still have a long-term future? I'm presiding over a transition from traditional paper products to electronic platforms. We are just started, and we're about a month into it, putting Sea Angler magazine on the iPad. It will give the older guys like me the opportunity to buy the magazine and it will give the younger bloods the opportunity to buy an electronic version which will be slightly cheaper than the paper one because of production costs are virtually zilch as far as electronic magazines are concerned. It will be exactly the same magazine, there will be no changes to it But the great advantage of the electronic one is it will have movies on it and it will have photographic galleries on it and it will have be more reader interactive. You better press a button and certain parts of the feature that is still in the magazine will be live on the iPad. And that's causing us a few logistical problems because the photographers have got to work stills and, if you like, video at the same time. So we are heavily investing in more equipment. Uh, We've had a few sound issues, like trying to hold an interview on a windy breakwater. It's quite difficult, but there are technical ways around that. 
we've sold that. We've got about 150 clips on file at the moment, ready to go onto various issues. By January, we will have our first whole electronic magazine available for sale. It's quite exciting. The quality of iPad and the cameras we're using to shoot the movie is phenomenal. I can't believe how good it is, because I've always been against it, particularly with static websites. So I've always found them very bland and uninspiring. They have no picture impact whatsoever, and the design is similar wherever you go, and I think loose and slipshod. When you see an electronic magazine, that you'll actually be able to flip over, and you think, oh, I like that, and press a button, and it starts talking to you. John Holden may be doing a bit of casting instruction. Maybe Alan Yates doing a bit on bait presentation. Dave Lewis showing you how to play a fish and work a clutch. It brings a whole new dimension to the world of publishing. In fact, it's moving out away from publishing a little bit and becoming a bit of a film director, trying to make it live and interesting. And photo sequences, you're about to press a button, various buttons and all various sequences will better come up. Rigs, tying, swivels, knots. It's quite exciting. The problem is we have a time and logistics factor trying to make it fit it all in you still want to produce a fantastic magazine because the magazine is the brand Sea Angler brand is fabulously strong and you might say to me why haven't you changed your masthead it's old fashioned have Kit Kat and Kellogg's and Ford changed their logos no Sea Angler hasn't either for exactly the same reason you can walk into a retailer and you can see Sea Angler you don't have to look for it it shouts at you that great big yellow flash so, yes, it is old-fashioned, but it serves a purpose. And we're going to move all that onto the iPad. And when we've done that, we're going to start working on apps. And when we've finished with apps, we're going to have another look at our website. You say iPad, but presumably it will also be available on other tablets too. On all sorts of tablets. Available on all, all tablets, yes. Can I suggest that if doing this is the way forward, and in terms of production equipment and staff input time, quite a costly way forward into the bargain, does this spell the beginning of the end for your less well-off competitors? Um, I think any small independent magazine will struggle to match our activity. I think our main rival, they are quite committed to digital, so they will stick with it. They are a very small private company, owned by one man. Really likeable guy. Never cross swords with him, ever. He does his own thing. He's happy with the revenues that he can get from his titles. Now, to a big multinational company like Bauer Media, which is huge, and I mean huge, his sort of revenues would not please my bosses. We are multinational. We are expected to deliver X amount of pounds. When a reader picks up a copy of Sea Angler from the magazine racks, he can, as many do, take it into work where others are free to read it within that single cover payment. Are there then protections put in place to prevent similar things happening with the electronic version, such as emailing copies to everybody? And if there are, could this potentially make it a more lucrative prospect than the printed copy version? It will be locked onto that one reader, or the ones, he will be actually a subscriber electronic subscriber 
uh, if you want to see it, you'll have to go around his house and look at his machine. He can't send it to you to look at. It will be locked. I suspect we'll lose a bit of our magazine circulation, but we'll gain it on the electronic side. And I think we'll make slightly more revenue from the electronic product because the costs of producing magazines in this day and age, particularly with printing, transport and paper, are pretty horrendous, to be honest. Paper goes up about 12% every year. That's just one cost that we have to absorb. Some of it we do absorb, some of it we pass on. But again, because of the um, state of the uh, economy, you can only push prices so far. Before the voice recorder was switched on, you outlined just how successful Sea Angler had been over the years in terms of financial security and market share. Market share has always been about 68 to 72% of the whole market. Revenues have been extremely lucrative up till uh, about seven or eight years ago when trading conditions changed. We're selling less magazines now, but we've got more market share. We're still taking as much out of the market revenue-wise because we've, it's the way we do our accounting. Advertising, obviously, has struggled a little bit because people have to make choices where they put their money when they're buying space. But we've seen certain companies, particularly um, companies like Jerry's of Morecambe, expanding, say, their mail order business, despite the fact that they also do inserts and they have their own website. So that tells me you don't spend all that money every month unless you're getting that, at least getting that back and more on top because it wouldn't be worth the effort. I think the nature of how people buy stuff is changing. It's very price point driven, whether it be a tackle or a motor car, everybody looks at the price or the deal. Everybody wants a deal. But Sea Angler has, I think, stayed pretty focused on what readers want. Now, I'm not saying that I've always got it right, or my people have always got it right. But as soon as we see a dip, or we get there's people make constructive comments, we change direction. We don't say, "Well, this is what I'm going to do," because that would be pig-headed. You have to adapt to the market. You have to see the opportunities. You have to see the niches. And you have to go with the flow, basically. Because if you don't, you're going to lose revenues and you're going to lose circulation. And people will start questioning whether you're a very good editor. It has happened in some cases. After 27 years of you at the helm and 40 years of the magazine on the racks, you've seen off quite an array of competitors. Some of these, obviously, have been more focused than Sea Angler in terms of coverage, such as specific boat or shore-based titles, which presumably sees them targeting a smaller market in the first place. But not all of them. There have also been some quite difficult economic times as well. Yet throughout that time, Sea Angler has never looked under any hint of threat. Why should that be? A lot of the titles have come been launched against us because the publishers of the various companies have worked out our revenues and thought we'll have a slice of that cake. They've all tried and some have failed and gone by the way. Some have lost a lot of circulation probably because of a mix of two things a market forces and because of the product that we've got because all we do is we just put our foot on the gas a bit harder we keep big issues stunning photography which costs a lot of money um, great layouts 
gifts, both cover mounted and subs drivers, all help to create a package that people find attractive. As I said earlier on, people do like a deal and we try to give them the best deal that we can, both in value for money and um, as thank yous in forms of DVDs and uh, subscription gifts. Some of the subscription gifts can be worth up to nigh on 50 quid at true retail value. Well, if you took your subscription value away from that, you're actually getting the magazine for nothing and getting a, and a reel to go fishing with. So, Why do you think that both Sea Angler and the top slot it occupies have lasted for so long? It's a word I don't like. It's passion. But it's not only my passion. It's the passion of the people who support me to produce the magazine every month. It's my designer, my staff, my sub-editor and all my freelance guys. They are as passionate as me about producing a magazine as anybody I've ever known. It's, it's incredible. The loyalty is second to none. They've all been poached over the years and they've all said, no, thank you. We'll stick with Sea Angler. And, and I thank them for that because we've grown up as a family and I've seen their work from the early days when some of it was pretty dodgy, very iffy, to what I would consider I've got probably the f- best five sea angling photographers in the business work for Sea Angler. And I think the readers appreciate that when they open the magazine. If you've got an eye for a great picture or something that motivates you or a great technical picture, it's in Sea Angler. The problem, I suppose, now is that time is marching on in terms of your working life. You're actually the same age as me, and I've been retired for a few years now, albeit as part of an early package. But you are still at the helm. So what does the future hold for Mel Russ? The future for Mel Russ is to carry on working. I've been asked by my uh, managing director if I'd like to stay, so I'm going to stay. I'm 65 in March. I'm doing a four-day week at the moment and I'll probably do a little bit less when I'm 65, but I'm not taking my hand off the tiller. Uh, I'm staying to look after the um, tone and pace of the title. That's going to be my job, to make sure that uh, we hit our budgets and get our revenues, because I'm quite a commercially-minded editor. Quite happy to write an advertorial and bring in a few extra bob. That's not a problem for me. I'm staying, really because I'm a very hands-on sort of practical person and I like crafting magazines. I love working with great designers, great writers, great photographers. I love to see that empty flat plan over four weeks fill up with some great stuff. When I see the proofs, even I, after all these years, I'm amazed at what we can do, what we can achieve. I mean, it's not all great, but you get some stuff that is absolutely just mind-blowing. It really is. And in your opinion, from a purely sea angling point of view now, did you see, experience and guide the magazine through the best of it all? It's funny you should say that. I've had some long conversations with the likes of people like Mike Millman, who's been in the business longer than me, and he's a great Plymouth photojournalist who's more or less retired now. And he said, Mel, I think you and I have had the best of it. He said we had the best fishing, we had the most excitement, there was the biggest activity biggest circulations he said but the world is changing and we've got to change but looking back he said I think we've had the most exciting times in sea angling 
and I probably would agree with him. My sentiments exactly. There aren't many compensations for growing old, but being in the best place at the best time is most certainly one of them, which for me was the file course jumbo cod scene. All of that said, getting back to today and the Siangla magazine helm, in your considered opinion, do you think that over the last 27 years or so, you've steered it well? I've been through some stormy seas, not always gone well, but I think the mix of experience and a sort of I want it to work attitude has allowed me to bolt together a magazine that has worked. When you work with the general public, you cannot please all the people all the time. It's totally impossible. I work on the principle, if I can keep 90% of the people happy all of the time, then I've done my job. The other 10%, well, they've got to make up their mind what they're going to do. But if I can keep that amount of people entertained and informed, then I think I've done the job. Ah, but the next hand on the tiller might chart a totally different course. He most certainly will. It doesn't concern me. When Pete retired, I worked with him for a week when we had a handover, and he shook my hand as he walked out the door and he said, best of luck, Mel. He said, you're going to need it. And I just got on with it. And when I walk out the door, I will do exactly the same thing to the next editor and say, best of luck, just do the best you can. That's all you can do. And has that person already been identified and presumably is being groomed? No, that's why I'm staying on, because the company can't identify anybody either outside the business or within this company who they would want as the next editor. Interesting times ahead. Yes, very. As this is going to archive, history will most certainly be the judge of that. It will be interesting for researchers in maybe 40 years' time to look back on the early stages and uncertainties of non-paper publishing which I'll wager will long since have become the norm by then. Whether Sea Angler will still be a part of that norm remains to be seen. I personally suspect that it will. It certainly looks the most likely contender. So there you have it, a potted history of Britain's most popular and successful Sea Angling magazine, from the days of not too many poor quality black and white pages to its first electronic edition. My thanks here then to Mel Ross for putting aside part of his very busy schedule to walk us through, from an historical perspective, the past four decades.